From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. Some combination of us are here this week. Cade Massey with my buddies Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner. Longtime collaborators here on Wharton Moneyball. Our fourth musketeer, Eric Bradlow, is off doing Eric Bradlow things this week. He will be back. We've got a little COVID segment up top, got some open mic segments, and then we have a terrific conversation with the manager of high performance for U.S. Olympic swimming. Straight from Tokyo, we got a fun conversation about what's going to happen in the pools, what has been happening in the pools, and more generally, what it's like to be on the inside of this team at the very highest level of performance. That's coming up in Q4. Q1, guys, as you know, for the last year and a half, this has been COVID quarter. What's been going on in the world of COVID? You know, two months ago, three months ago, we kind of thought we were going to be transitioning out of this segment. We thought we would we were going to play it out. We didn't have as much to talk about. We'd be back on to two hours of sports. But uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. And every week it seems to become more clear that that's not the case. So this week, what has caught your eye in the world of COVID? Unfortunately, a lot has caught my eye this week, probably this week more than any other week. We can talk. I, I probably want to start with anecdotes, which is a crude but, but potentially useful indicator of how broad COVID is in the community. Um, we definitely had a nadir, like nothing. And what's happening now is I'm starting to hear the cases again. And obviously, you can read about them in other countries. England is, is seeing spikes, uh, even Japan for the Olympics uh, around the world. Israel reinstituted some of its mask mandates that they had gotten rid of. L.A. instituted mask mandates. But it's not really until it, it actually hits the people you know that you know that it's kind of front and center. Um, so... I very sadly have found a, one of my friend's father died of uh, COVID. He was double vaccinated. The, the good news is no good news in that. Uh, he was a very, very sick man at the end of his life. Um, and that seems to be the, the potential lesson here is that breakthrough cases are happening kind of all over. Where they're dangerous is to people who are very, very weak already. Um, and, uh, and this is what's you know, on the horizon. I'm starting to hear lots and lots of breakthrough cases um, among vaccinated people. They tend to have very modest illness, um, but it is what surprised me, and if I have to be quite blunt about it, I had hoped that the vaccine would prevent infection, um, and I don't think that's the case um, of this new variant, that vaccine is preventing serious illness, hospitalization, deaths, at, a, at a still a substantial margin, particularly for the mo- mostly young and healthy. It is, it is um, a very, very protective, um, personal protective regimen, the vaccine, but I do believe that it is still you're still quite likely uh, to get it if you've hold been on, exposed. Hold on, hold on. Well, quite wait, likely, do, do, just, I mean, just sounding, sounding glum. I know you're going to get that. Well, no, yeah. I mean, but but I mean, are, what was your previous optimism that there would not be breakthrough cases because the vaccine was only ever going to be 90, 95 percent effective? That, right. Shane, I mean, on. Shane, that, that was that was what it was shown to be against the original strains. We had a long conversation on the show in this segment last week about. Yeah. Well, there's different studies on what the the effectiveness is against the current Delta strain. And we kind of pushed Audi to come up with a number. I think you came up with like 80 percent was kind of a ball. Yeah, which is, a, by the way, it was a lot lower because if you think about it, um, 
people have the unfortunate way of comparing, say, 95 to, to 99. 95 is a whole hell of a lot worse than 99. And one way to look mm-hmm. at it is one is five times smaller than five. Um, and 80 is a lot worse than 95. And I think it might even be lower. I, I was pushed to say around 80. Um, some of the data coming out of Israel suggests it's lower. Um, and actually, they released a whole shit ton of data this past week. And it seems that the vast majority of breakthrough cases in Israel are among vaccinated people. So I did some research. Oh, I, asked no, no, them, no, no. Well, I guess I, I, I'm, I'm still a little confused because that is the definition of a breakthrough case, right? No, no. Like, the what do you mean? majority of cases. Maybe I misspoke. I'm sorry. Yeah. The vast majority of cases in Israel, total oh. cases, are among vaccinated people. But that is the have almost no, of the population. Uh, what's, what's the vaccination rate in Israel? Ah, okay. So the vaccinated rate among adults is 85%. And overall, it's about 60 to 65%. So yeah, but I thought at 95% efficacy, you should still see far more cases among the, va- the unvaccinated than the vaccinated. Obviously, okay. the base rates favor the vaccinated because there's far more of them. But the rates are showing up not too far out of proportion to the population percentages. So there's a couple hypotheses being talked about. Yeah. And this is a real new one. I'm going to about to throw in a real curveball here coming out of data. Just got out of Israel. Uh, put it up in the rundown. I don't know if you had a chance to look at the actual observation. Turns out that natural immunity is way effect, more effective than vaccination against the Delta strain. Okay. So they found the, the uh, people who are among the people who are showing up positive a tiny, tiny proportion um, are among the people who've already had COVID. Right, Yet right. there's lots of people who have been double vaccinated. They're showing up with a positive okay. case. And, and which, just again, to be like, what's the, uh, which vaccine is predominantly, was predominantly given uh, out in Pfizer, Israel? Pfizer. Pfizer is the dominant vaccine in Israel. There's some Moderna, but it's almost exclusively Pfizer, the general population. So, so I, I, real quickly, before we go too far on that one, it is super interesting. But on the on the relative prevalence of Delta cases among those who've been vaccinated and not vaccinated, presumably there may be some kind of selection. As long as those who are vaccinated are a little freer with exposing themselves, reasonably freer, even you yep. would that would work against. That would push Absolutely. back. That would push back towards more population levels. It's it's a terrible analysis. It's observational. It's just screwed up, rep left to right. And this is something we we have to caution about. One of the things, if you think about the, we talked about this last week. The trials were so clean and so controlled by definition. They didn't even let anyone in who had who had anybody. So everybody was fresh. Nobody was exposed. One of the problems. One of the things about Israel is that so many people got sick and were positive in the country, estimates over a third of the population, that provides a lot of uh, immunity. And they also encourage people, unlike in America, if you had the virus and you got sick and you tested positive, they told you to get to the back of the line when it came to the vaccine because they were confident that that it was provide immunity and then they would wait until they had enough vaccine to to then go to the people who had it. and in fact, my guess is that many, many people who did get COVID have not bothered to get vaccinated. And actually, that course of action might actually be the right one um, in the long run. And just to, to throw this out, obviously, one of the reasons why the numbers of unvaccinated people are not that large um, among the cases, the new cases of the Delta, is probably a lot of those unvaccinated people um, have had COVID already. 
Mm-hmm. And the ones who haven't may be staying out of out of sight, if you will. Mm-hmm. They change their behavior. So all these things make it extremely hard to predict what's happening. Total cases, you know, percentage wise, they're still pretty low. It's about 100, uh, sorry, about 800 a day. But that's uh, that's not trivial for a relatively small country. And, and the United States, we're seeing 30,000. It's about 000, the same as the US 000. right now in terms of per, per 100,000. Yes. It's about the same that's about in the Israel same. is exactly. here. Yeah, and you're also seeing the same kind of trajectory. We're seeing the same exponential spike across the U.S., the U.K., and Israel. It it just it looks very familiar, and it looks like we're on a serious uptick. And it was just two weeks ago that we were wondering whether it, it, we were just realizing that we'd begun the tick, and now we're really spiking. Guys, I looked at the the University of Texas Modeling Consortium earlier today for the first time in a while. You know, we quit looking at models. We quit looking at models the last few weeks, the last few months, because the forecast had tapered down so much. I just looked at that. So remember that we've had, uh, we've had the chief epidemiologist from that consortium on this show, and they're a serious um, multidisciplinary um, consortium working on this stuff. And the spike that they have for the universe, for not for the university, they, the spike they have for Texas is unbelievable. They are showing hospitalizations. I mean, the central forecast for hospitalizations and daily cases exceeding the peaks, exceeding both the first and second peak within two months. And um, it's just it's just unbelievable. And Texas is probably kind of in the middle of the U.S. in terms of uh, rate of vaccinations. It's not the Arkansas. It's obviously not the Vermonts either. But it's just ungodly to me that we've got we've got these huge spikes that kind of floored the place as they did most areas of the country. And here we go again. We are seemingly flying back up that slope again. So I I did a a little bit of research as to why Delta is so different. And the the um, answers I got, which are all conjectures, because no one really knows these things for sure, is that the Delta variant replicates in the cell much, much more efficiently than the other variants. What that means on a practical basis, and there's a a molecular reason for it, Shane might know this better than I do even, and that's the idea that there are certain codons for the same uh, amino acids that the cell is much more efficient at at kind of producing. And so the Delta variant has switched out the codons for the same amino acid, making much, much more of the virus, virus present in the body when you get infected, which means a couple things. It means that if you have the the, uh, if you've been exposed or you have the vaccine, you can get an infection because there's so much being produced so quickly that the immune system, the T helper cells, which recruit the antibodies to attack the, the spike protein or the, the virus, it just takes a little time for get that thing to get activated. And that's why you'll get these mild cases, these mild breakthrough cases. And so I'm actually quite hopeful for, for most places where vaccines are, are pretty widespread. Yeah, you'll be seeing a lot of cases, but most of the cases will result in a cold and there'll be very few hospitalizations among the vaccinated. Uh, I think Israel has very few um, serious cases among vaccinated and almost nobody who's a serious case under age 60, which was something that you were seeing um, at a lower rates, but quite frequently in the earlier uh, trajectory. So I'm actually quite hopeful that while we will see lots and lots of cases, uh, there will be much lower death rates and much lower serious cases than we well, saw so in the previous two surgeries. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. But I mean, there's, as a percent, you're hopeful about the percentages and that makes sense. But 
at the prevalence we're looking at, we're going to have lots more deaths. We're going to, if it goes the way people are forecasting, we're talking about getting back to crises in hospitals. I mean, that's, that's just the volume because of the number of unvaccinated and the contagion of the Delta, we're talking about real spikes that cause problems. I mean, yes, percentages are lower, but at the volumes of, I mean, look, for example, this is again, you know, we've seen the errors in models, right? But this is, I'm, I'm struck by what the UT modeling consortium is saying right now. They're saying, so peak ICU patients in Texas were just below 4,000. First spike last summer, about 3,500. Second spike, January, early February, almost 4,000. They're showing the central forecast with some very range around it, of course. They're showing the central forecasting, central forecast passing 4,000, well passing 4,000 before September. Okay, what's our over-under? Who's taking that? Because I'm taking under, under that. Easy. I'm taking the under. So why why are y'all why do y'all react that way? Because vaccination rates in Texas are probably what fifty percent. What are they among lower the, than, a little lower than that? Will probably, probably lower. be fifty. Well, what are they among September. the eighty and above and the seventy and above and the people who end up in the ICU? They're way over ninety percent, or probably eighty-five or higher, and that's the group that ends up in the ICU. And if we can't recognize that differential rates matter here, then we're blowing the modeling. Okay, are you going through fine, 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 good, sensible reaction, but are you sufficiently adjusting for how many more people will have this this time around than had it the first time around, given how much more contagious this thing is? Because, I mean, I'm forgetting now, but people talked about this thing being, what, five or 10 times more contagious than the first time around? So Okay, so the number that I saw was six r naught, okay. as opposed to the original r naught was about two to three. So I'm not factoring five to 10. I'm factoring more a factor of two. Um, uh, if it is five to 10, well, that's a different story. Well, but my posterior doesn't say five to 10, um, yeah. although it probably puts some probability on that because posteriors tend to put probabilities everywhere. So, for example, <laughs> I, saw, I saw an RT right now in Texas of 1.57. I don't remember seeing RTs that high early on. I mean, you don't, you don't have to be that high to, be, to get yourself in a real mess, right? So that's well, again, RT. real mess in terms of cases, but not necessarily, again, you know, I, the, the, I, I, I hear you completely, but I, yeah. I hear you completely and I could be wrong. I'm, I'm reacting a little strongly to the models I've seen this afternoon for the first time, but I'm pushing you guys a little bit mm -hmm. on the, on the, the, the denominator, I guess you're saying low probability with, and lower than we used to have, which is great. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm basing that on, you know, essentially that like, you know, the, the vaccines, even if they, you know, e e even with this Delta variant being more infectious, the vaccines, even when you have breakthrough cases, it seems like the actual health outcomes are, 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 are much improved compared to unvaccinated. Yes, yes. especially as a um, but some percentage and, 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 of them, and, and, and some I think Audi, of them are bad. And if we have a big enough base that we're hitting that person. But I, and I think Audi kind of like Audi's like the, the one, the biggest part of Audie's point, I think, is that when we look at like Texas only like being less than 50% vaccinated, that's probably not the most informative or, or the most kind of relevant figure. It is, you know, the vax, how many are vax, the proportion vaccinated among these kind of vulnerable populations, like, you know, people yeah. over 65, et cetera. And it could be with new variants that different parts of the population end up becoming vulnerable. And I can't, you, you know, I'm, I guess I'm not building the that into my kind of prediction of, of under, 
but um well, but so, as it currently stands, I don't think I, I mean I think we will probably see cases spikes in cases what, in the what, fall, but not necessarily in the deaths. Can you get you I hear all I hear all that and 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 surely deaths surely deaths will be lower, but we need a bottle that kind of includes, and I'm not doing a good job of it intuitively, including that higher denominator. But let me let me go at it at a different angle. Can you put yourself back in your mindset of say a year ago? We must have talked about this at some point and what did you believe the percentage of the population that would eventually be infected would become? Like, what, do, what percentage do we think it was going to top out at? Or maybe the combination of vaccination or, or do you remember having a sense of what you thought the percentage of total population that would either be vaccinated or get the infection was? I, I, I thought about this. Back in the day when we were thinking two to three was the R naught, so the un, the basically fresh population, no no protections. How how many people does an infected person give it to? Two to three, and and my estimate would be sixty seven percent, roughly between sixty and eighty percent of the population needed to be infected before it died. I thought vaccines would do the trick. If you add in the people who've got it plus the people who got vaccinated, I thought we were there. I don't believe. I'm revising that because clearly the variant, this variant in particular, has in many cases made the vaccine a great thing to have to prevent from getting dying from it or getting very sick, but not that protective when it comes to actually getting it or probably even giving it. So I'm wondering, and I can throw this out now, I'm wondering whether or not the exit for the populations of the world is endemic endemic COVID-19, which means that the only way this is becomes a non-issue is if the majority of the population gets it, which means all of us, me, you, your friends, yeah. your parents. Um, and but the, as, and as, as you just described, if, 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 if this variant and, and it continues on this kind of trajectory, and we're talking about something that is much less deadly, conditional on you get it, but you're much yep. more likely to get it. We are. We're into the flu. We're into the common cold. Uh, you know, it's just sort of like, you know, that at that point, you know, COVID becomes, I mean, you know, the common cold, we don't have a vaccine for. And we just kind of peacefully no. coexist and with the it. flu, we don't um, have sort of a vaccine. But okay. It's okay. obviously, and I, I don't mean to dismiss COVID are, because we are. haven't it's seen those death rates come down to that level yet. Okay, Shane, hold on. So, I, yeah, okay, good. That's a good caveat. But you are pushing it down a little bit. And one, I like last week, I really appreciated. I was talking this through a little bit, and you were like, that sounds like the flu. Because I was trying to work through, mm-hmm. should we be wearing masks again, especially if you're in places where the prevalence is higher? And in here, you, I talked it through a bit, and you said, that sounds like the flu, Kate. I'm like, yep, you're exactly right. Because it'll screw up your life for a few days, but you're probably not going to die from it. And and when it's flu season in your neck of the woods, you've got to take some precautions. Okay, but I don't want you to push that too far down. And now I'm trying to entertain, are we being too cavalier? So for example, Adi, so this is exactly where I was going. This notion of endemic, is it now the case that, well... It's not everybody's going to get it. You're either going to get the vaccine, or you're going to get it, or both. Both, both. Not, hopefully, both. This thing's not going away. I'm mean, this this variant right is, already, <laughs> is already doing all this damage. It's going to do more damage, and we, there's more variants to come, especially the longer we have people who aren't vaccinated. So, are we on the way to everybody essentially? And then, if that's true, 
now we're back to wanting to flatten the curve, right? Because it's one thing for everybody to get it over the next year. It's another thing for everybody to get it in the next four months. And that, I think there are, reg- there are regions of the country, certainly, where if everybody got, gets it fast enough, that's going to be a problem, even if the death rate is relatively low. Well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond to that. I think the right order, by the way, is vaccine first, then get it. That's the right way to do it, right? Because get the vaccine, then get it. You'll be much less likely to have a bad outcome. But the open question is, once you got as many people vaccinated as possible, what do you do now? And but, I'm but you mean not, You don't mean as many, you mean as many as you can get. Yes, the many people who are going to take, yeah, obviously you can't, whatever. The question is, what do, then we, what do we do as a population? I'm kind of, the tw- one idea is that every time there is a surge, we go back to masks and, and shutting down. Another idea is, no, exactly the opposite. Live your life. And if you get it, you get it, because everybody's got to get it. And if, as long as you can keep the, the, uh, the, what we call the curve flat and keep it from overwhelming our medical system, then that's the right, that's the right optimization. As many people as can get it as possible, as long as the curve is flat. And that might be the solution. I'm not saying that is the solution. I'm starting to wonder whether we should be considering that and working that into our policies. Yeah. Um, Boris Johnson well, I was think pretty open get, about that. In, uh, in, in England, he to... essentially said, we're, un- we're undoing it. We're, we're back to no restrictions. Yep, it's raging. Get your vaccine and get about your business. I think that's just political reality. I mean, I, 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 what, Boris Johnson's no model for us in any number of ways, but he, I think he's stating as choice what he didn't have any choice about. And <laughs> in some sense, the U.S. is, is in the same. No, situation. and I mean, I, right. I, I think the U.S. even more, I, I think politically, I, I think it's at least in certain parts of the country, it's going to be especially the parts of the country that are the least vaccinated, the parts of the country that I think are going to be the most resistant to another kind of attempt at a shutdown or something like that. Like, right. I think politically yes. it uh, like something as dramatic as another like quarantine or, or, or shutdown or stay at home type order. I, I, I just, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm not a, a political side. I just don't see that happening in the United States, especially in the areas where probably it would most be most effective. Right. Shane, Adi, uh, we've talked about the elderly being the most vulnerable and age has always been the most highly related demographic characteristic. We, we tend to kind of wave our hands at it and say, yeah, but the, the old folks are all vaccinated now, so it's not going to be as deadly. Is that true? So what percentage of people over 70 are not vaccinated? And we've just said, oh, it kind of feels like this is going to become endemic, i.e. everybody's going to get the damn thing. If you're not vaccinated, you're going to get it. So what percentage is it, Adi, of the 70-year-olds who aren't vaccinated? And aren't we saying, well, those people are going to get it. Oh, and by the way, mortality, if you get this thing above 70, is a much higher number. It's okay, 80% so of Americans fully vaccinated. 80%, 80%, of, 80% of people 65 and above in the U.S. are vaccinated. Okay, in vaccinated. certain parts, In certain parts of the country, it's nearly 100%. Yeah. And um, in certain, it's lower than 50, certainly. And certain, it's lower. Let's stay with that. Eight, you said 80, 80%? 80% fully vaccinated, 89% at least. How many people dose. in the U.S. are older than 65? And so 20% of them is how many people? Let mm. me just, uh, so I'll give you a, so the, uh, as I, I told you, I started off the segment with a friend of mine who, who uh, talked to me about his father who passed away. His mother was also double vaccinated and she also got it. For her, it was a very short, cold-like like illness. Uh, but she's in her, you know, 70s. Um, one of the things that when you talk to doctors, 
uh, if you're very weak, you tend to not die of the thing that you actually have, which could be cancer or heart disease. You typically die of an infection or a pneumonia that gets you when you're very, very weak. Yeah, right. And I think we're going to be seeing that a lot with COVID. Um, it's going to be the thing that pushes people away. I mean, what I mean is a way is uh, dying. Even vaccinated people? or the- Yes, because when you're very weak, your, vac- your immune system isn't able to mount an effective defense okay. against a rapidly, mute, not, not a rapidly, rapidly um, replicating virus. Mm-hmm. And your T, your T cells is despite having antibodies, they still need to bring them together and do their mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. And a vac- and a uh, virus that multiplies quickly mm-hmm. and it w- will overwhelm a weak immune system. And I think that mm-hmm. that's the, one of the reasons why weak people, uh, people who have leukemia, cancers, uh, emphysema, okay. um, they're dying. Right. So I, I think we've we've stumbled into another very important point that as the Delta variant explodes around the U.S., elderly people who have been vaccinated need to be very precautious. That 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 very cautious. We need to take lots of precautions. I mean, we we haven't talked about this because we've been taking it more personally. Do I wear a mask or not? Well, here's I think a very important takeaway. If the more fragile they are, even if they're vaccinated, the more they really need to go back to, you know, early pandemic behaviors, because this thing is going to run through the country. It just is. It's much more contagious than it was before. And we've got enough unvaccinated people to provide fuel for it. And what Adi is saying, on the one hand, we've been waving our hands, but all the old people are vaccinated. There's two points here. One is in sufficiently fragile people, even vaccination may not keep you from dying or severe consequences of a breakthrough. And the other point is, look, even if 80% of 65 and ups are vaccinated, that still leaves like 8 million people. Maddie tells me there's 40 million U.S. folks over 65. So 20% of that's 8 million people. 8 million people in the U.S. in that elderly group, most vulnerable, unvaccinated. And we just said earlier that everybody in the U.S. is going to get this thing. So, What's mortality well, among 65 plus from the Delta variant? I have to say that uh, that I'm now quite convinced that the end game is the majority of the country, 80 to 90 percent getting it. And then it just will become an annual mild disease like the flu. Um, and that's the way out. And there'll probably be vaccines every year to target the new variant. And we'll all take one in our arms if we're if we are concerned enough to do so. Um, just the way we think about the flu vaccine. And that's that's the future. Um, what 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 we have to I think in the United States, where we have so many unvaccinated and we still didn't have I don't think we had the, the rates of infection that they had in Israel. Um, I think at least a third of the country now in certain places in the United States, there was. Yeah, I large, feel like New York yeah. City might be more of the New York City, Israel, and, right? Uh, but, I, you know, I was in California and I felt like, you know, I could I could start listing the people that I know that had covid. And, and probably talk for minutes, you know, list you know, literally dozens and dozens of people that I know that had COVID. When I was in California, particularly Northern California, nobody knew anyone who had COVID. They, they were, they went inside, they were so effective at it that in certain segments of the population, there's still an enormous swath of people who never had it. Um, so that group is a little different, but, but um, I think that's the end game. Um, I can't obviously know for sure, but, but I'm increasingly I, I, thinking that's the, that's the out. That seems reasonable. That seems real. People have speculated about that from the beginning. And for a while, it looked like we might avoid it. Now, it does seem much more likely. My concern is what happens between now and then. My real concern is what happens this fall. And what 
I think we might be up for not just some carnage, but some interruptions. I mean, you know, I want to go to a college football game this fall. So, I mean, that's really low level, doesn't really matter kind of stuff. But we lived without a bunch of stuff last year that we kind of feel like we're entitled to now. And we might have some interruptions that we're not anticipating. And it's worth schools, noting that we, schools, we, will, we will be bringing together much a lot, the, yes. bringing all the kids back to school when they yes. can't be vaccinated. That's right. Well, I actually I'm, I actually think that the kids, if we believe in the endemic solution, getting the kids infected as fast as possible while keeping them away from everybody, you know, the people who could get sick is the strategy. Sending them to camp, <laughs> camp, get, you know, infect each other, get them vaccinated as much as can. Cause I'm you're, you're bringing back like the chicken pox parties or whatever. Right? From our youth. I mean, <laughs> it's a, it's a, and, and uh, frankly, the, the slower, it turned out in Israel, by the way, the initial spread came from the young teenagers who not unlike the little children that don't seem to really spread it, but those young teenagers who weren't eligible for vaccination, Israel didn't do very much of 12 to 16 for a variety of reasons. Um, they were, they vaccinated 16 and up um, 12 to 16. They didn't. And those, those, those young, young kids uh, were the, the early force of spreading Delta. I, it would happen anyway, but, and, and right now the, they are over half the, the cases of, uh, of kids who got of, of, of uh, cases in Israel of the Delta variant are, are 16 and under, and they're not sick, um, but they, they do spread it. There's no doubt 12 to 16 spread it. So one would ask, should really ask a real hard question. Like what should we be doing with the kids? And for one thing, um, I encourage vaccination probably cause that's good for them, but definitely um, I would love to see them, you know, this is how illnesses storm through and get done is the people who aren't harmed by it catch it and are immune to it. I mentioned this data point earlier. I think I didn't really sink in, but Israel is seeing almost no repeat cases of Delta among people who had alpha beta or, or, or uh, I guess, gamma, whatever the, the third the one natural. was. Naturally. Yeah, I mean, the naturals. They yeah. aren't seeing repeat cases, which is a very compelling piece of evidence. More to see. Terrible observational, not an experiment, blah, blah, blah. Caveat, caveat, warning, warning. Um, that, but basically, they're seeing very few uh, repeat, repeat cases, which means that natural immunity is way better than vaccination immunity, which is something that I didn't think was true as little as a week ago. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we, it hasn't been talked about at all. So it sounds like a strong empirical observation. See if it, see if it firms up. Adi, one thing you said, though, early in that school conversation was, great, um, let's let the kids get it. I mean, if they aren't vaccinated, let's just let, let's, let's get it out that way as long as you keep them away from the vulnerable populations, that's a big, that's right. Impossible. Impossible. In some absolutely Christmas, which were big spikes last time around. Yeah. 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 Right. And, 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 you know, we, us teaching them. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. So let's, let's end on Matt's asking us an over under that we'd like to traffic in over unders around here. I'm going to slightly revise what he's suggesting is okay. Four hosts, how many positive COVID tests in the next 12 months, in the next year, among the four hosts? Oh, among the four of us. Yeah. Matt sets the over under a one and a half. I'm going to take the over. I think I'll take the over too. Man, that's a toughie. <laughs> 
Actually, no, I'm going to take the under. I'm going to take the under on that. Why is that, Shane? Why shifting? I guess just, you know, because we are all vaccinated. And, um, you know, we... To, to for us to test positive for COVID, we'd have to kind of know we had it or, or we'd have to feel like we had it. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, I also, everybody, and we so know like, you know, be, between being vaccinated and the protection that offers against getting an infection and the protection that offers against feeling bad enough to get tested once we, even if we were to get infected, I'll take the under. Does it change your answer if you know after this recording, I'm going to go meet some friends in a bar in North Burnet? No. Nope. Have some beers and drink. Are, are your are your friend? I'm I'm worried about you more because I think Texas bars are going to be filled with more unvaccinated people. This is my point. Than Philly bars, and I don't go to bars, so um, I, I'm, I surround myself with people that a, I almost know we are, are vaccinated. I do go to restaurants, but I think bars Phillies are games. Are we not we're not worried about outdoors. Experience. I'm still not worried about outdoors. Okay. I go to Phillies games. I go to restaurants where I don't think they are that. You're not face to face with someone. Uh, I'm, I predict one of us will have it almost certainly. I, I, um, I predict a conditional, a, is, conditional on one of us having it. I predict it's me because I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm going, I, I am going to crowded bars. Get it. We're, I mean, I'm, I'm, unless I start changing my behavior and really reverting back to early pandemic behavior, I'm, Texas is just about to explode. And yeah. I, I think I, I'm going to take the over. Um, nevertheless, if you're vaccinated, like go out. Do it. I, I'm I'm very much in favor of it because I do think that if you're vaccinated and healthy and not too old and healthy and and vaccinated and healthy, not 75, not even, you know, and I guess prominently, I don't have living parents, so I'm not I don't I don't have it. I mean, I have an aunt and uncle that I that I'll be seeing in, in, in August um, who are in their late 70s, 80. But other than that, there's really okay. nobody else that I see that is that is that is substantially at risk and my aunt and uncle are, are i mean so that's that, that they are a concern um yeah. and probably quite honestly when i do see them it might be something that i do, wouldn't have thought of yeah. a week Good. ago but Good. when i do end up seeing it at the end of august i think it might be sensible to get tested and i don't think i would have bothered that's, that's um, right that's right quarantine or get tested we know we can be we believe we can be asymptomatic carriers and so mm-hmm. you're this is a very we just we just stumble into another very important point that it's not just a, it's, we have to remember. It's, oh, we have to go back to remembering all these early pandemic behaviors and concerns. It's not about us necessarily. It's also about the more vulnerable that we spend time with. And so exactly, Adi, exactly. I've got 70-year-old, almost, sorry, almost 70-year-old in-laws that I've got to treat with some of that same care. That's exactly right. All right. Why don't we, st- why don't we stop there on COVID for this week? Um, and we'll pick it up again next week. We always do our Q1s that way. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. You guys can jump in here. We love to hear from you. Reach out to us on Twitter. Probably the easiest way to get us. Our handle on Twitter, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. Occasionally tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics. We love hearing your questions, suggestions, criticisms, cor- corrections, ideas, whatever you got. At WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. You can also send us email. Email is our mailbag 
Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read all those emails and we get as many of them on the show as possible. It's a way to ask us again questions, make observations, give us story ideas, whatever you got. We love to hear from you guys. Reach out to us anytime. We are Shane, Adi, and Cade today, and we are Shane, Adi, and Cade this segment. Guys, open, lines open. Mike, what in the world of sports caught your eye over the last week? Well, I uh, watched a little bit of Tour de France, which is something we didn't talk about at all this year. Well, um, to be fair, we don't we don't usually spend a lot of time. You know, was we might have we might have done a few shows back in the day, but that's been a while. So that thing wrapped up this weekend, right? It wrapped up this weekend. I watched a little bit. It's 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 fa- it's really fun to watch, uh, particularly if you if there's a breakaway and it's fascinating when there's a breakaway and then the 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 peloton. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, catch it tries to catch the the leaders that break away, and uh, and, and there's a lot of strategy in the Tour de France and. And one of the things that, that there's a, a concern is that their analytics has taken over the Tour de France and they all have power meters and they have headphones and they're very carefully calibrating how they run the races. Um, and it doesn't quite have that. It has that ultra controlled feeling uh, of, uh, you know, the, the analytics takeover. I have so heard, hold, you think hold, that's, hold on. Is it the way you talk about it is making me think about the analytics in like auto racing where it's way behind the scenes and people don't know it, but we've talked to these guys. And so we, we know from our conversations on the show that they have models back there that are telling them kind of optimal places to change tires, optimal places to refuel. They're doing, I can imagine pretty much a direct analogy to an athlete on a bike. They know what that guy has eaten. They know what he's burning. They know all of those things. Yep. They can probably estimate quite precisely what he's got left in the tank. That's kind of fascinating. And, and the, the strategy actually is not so dissimilar to auto racing. Auto racing, obviously, much of the strategy has to do with when you go into the pit and when you change your tires and how often you do that. And, yeah. and, and that's, that's sophisticated strategy. The sophistication in the Tour de France is how do you protect your winner, your, your, your team yeah. leader? Yeah. Right. yeah. That's this hard is the to el- do. This is the element that kind of differentiates it from auto racing, right, is that you have a whole bunch of participants right. – that aren't uh-huh. even trying to win, which I was always, I don't know, made me feel strangely towards the tour de France that like, you know, it's kind of like you've, it, it, it's, I guess a team sport, but the only, the winner really kind of is acknowledged. It's crazy. Per- You're absolutely right. It's a team sport, but only the winner matters. And there are two, two main storylines in the in the tour de France this year. The, the, the obviously the winner, um, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. Uh, Pokagar. He's a Slovenian. He won last year also. So winning two years in a row. Last year, he was almost unheralded. This year, he was clearly a favorite. Okay, hold on. Um, Adi, you can't give us – we just had this team versus individual yeah. conversation. You yeah. got yeah. to tell us what team he's on. So the team that he's on is the – I believe it's the, the United Arab Emirates, the team Emirates. Um, okay. Okay. I guess another word that people pronounce differently, depending on who you talk to. Um, and uh, I've heard Emirates. I don't even know. Um, and uh, and so that's the team. And obviously, I don't even know who else is on it. But without that rest of the team, okay. um, he, he was. But this you, is the. Do you remember that? how big a team is? I forget how big. All my, all my bike knowledge comes from the few years that Lance Armstrong was kind yeah. of in that whole thing. 
How big are these? I think teams? it's like three to four racers. I think on that scale. I think it's bigger than that. Oh, um, I, I'm not sure whether it's 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 much larger than five, but I believe it's at least five, um, and maybe even larger. And they all have different roles. And this 21 year old, he's extremely, I maybe mean, 22, some ridiculously young number. He's the favorite to win in the Olympics um, in a time trial. This guy is clearly one of the world's greatest uh, bicyclists. And that's why he's the leader, because he's a guy who can win in the mountains. He can win a time trial. And that's where the time tends to accumulate. That, And he won by over five minutes, which is a very large gap, oh, in, okay. which is insane because each day and there's there's you know almost two weeks of racing. They race for five hours. So you're looking at, you know, 100 hours plus of racing and, and the margin of victory is five minutes. Um, that goes to show just how important it is to ride in a team. And the pack, the Peloton, is so huge because they keep everybody together and they, they reel in uh, the riders who break away because yeah, yeah, yeah. a team, a group of 100 can easily overtake a group of two or three when they're determined. So, by um, the way, we've learned that there are 22 teams in the Tour de France and they have nine riders per team. So, by the way, that takes us right up to just shy of 200 total. But it gives you a sense of it. So, are you saying? I, mean, I thought I thought you lost me there for a second. You were the the Slovenian who won. Is he the great time trialer? Did you say he's yes. the favorite? He's the favorite in the. So, what is the Olympics? What what events do they run in the Olympics? Like, the Olympics is, I believe, it's a time trial. It's just a time um, trial. What and time trials come in different. There are road. There 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 are road, some sort of road races, I believe, in the Olympics too. Aren't uh, there? there might be a road race as well, and I don't know. I wish yeah. I knew the details and could could I feel uh, like we're like Martians. We're, we're talking about sports on Mars. I went to Mars this weekend. They play this neat sport. Well, I mean, it's I'm, a great I, sport. I'm, I'm intrigued by the team aspect. So like the, the team, the non-winning, the, the, the non-lead team members, is there most of their role to just kind of create interference for the other lead? Well, it, it depends. Or? So, so what they do, they do a couple of things. First of all, they keep your, your lead rider from getting tired. So that they on the time trial day they they have energy, um, they protect them so that no other team leader gets away in a breakaway. They have lots and lots of roles. But the other story, as I don't want to take our entire day up on Tour de France, is Mike Cavendish, and this guy is phenomenally interesting because this guy looked like he was completely and utterly washed out. He is the sprinter. This guy never wins a Tour de France, but wins the most stages because this guy can accelerate from a mere 30 miles an hour to 45 miles an hour in fractions of a second and can hold that speed on the flat for 150 to 200 meters. And he's essentially the fastest guy over a short distance in the world, probably the fastest guy over a short distance that the world has ever seen. And he was vying to break the record for the most number of stages ever won. And it's a great story because he was so completely and utterly washed out. He had what's called Epstein-Barr disease, which is the disease of, of being fatigued. And he's 36 years old. So the two storylines is this ancient uh, Mark Cavendish uh, who tied the all-time record and but just failed to beat it in France. And this kid winning on the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, this reminds me of watching the 2016 Olympics. We were overseas at the time, and I remember watching some of the biking competitions, um, and they were great fun. Some of the short track ones especially were, were great fun. All right, Shane, in the last week, what in particular has caught your eye? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's certainly worth uh, talking about the uh, expansion draft for the uh, incoming NHL team, the Seattle Kraken, which is happening uh, uh, tomorrow, 
Uh, and uh, that, that would be, I think, relatively big news in the hockey world anyway. But it got, I think, a little bit more dramatic uh, because several teams have kind of left some surprisingly high profile players yeah. unprotected. Like I most mean, notably, Carey Price, yeah. you know, the goaltender for the Montreal Canadiens that just led them on this amazing run was left unprotected. And so, you know, there's a lot of speculation about why, why Montreal did that, whether Seattle will actually pick up Carey Price or not. Um, and so, and, and, you know, that kind of historically, go, you know, part of the kind of interesting element of that is, of course, you know, a couple of years ago when uh, Vegas had their expansion draft, Marc-Andre Fleury, the goaltender for the Penguins, was also left unprotected mm-hmm. and was picked up and basically was one of the main reasons why Vegas made it to the Stanley Cup finals in their first year. Yeah, the, this is a this has become a major event and, and people that, you know, it seems like interest in the Kraken has been high from the announcement and they announced it years before they were going to hit the ice. But it's only grown. They grew when they named him the Kraken. And now they've got the expansion draft. And it is kind of a unique moment in sports to have these expansion drafts. And I don't know if you're old enough, Shane, but Audie should be, but he might not have been paying attention at the time. But my first exposure to expansion teams were the 1976 Buccaneers and Seahawks. Oh, so there's a connection. It goes back to Seattle. So Seattle, when they were expansion team in 76, my memory is that the NFL did not play so nice with these expansion teams. They their rules of who they made available were very different. I think the NHL learned yeah. they wanted the team. No, to and I mean, I mean, it's hard to compare football to hockey just in terms of you know who, how many should be protected. But hockey has even changed. Like the, when the when the Panthers and uh, the Lightning or some of these other teams, the most recent expansions in the '90s weren't nearly as as kind to those expansion teams either. So they've even kind of changed the configuration within hockey to give these expansion teams a little bit more of a, you know, to not basically not guarantee that they're going to be bad for, you know, the first few years of their And then here come the Golden Knights and they make the finals in their first year and two out of the first three or something like that. And And yeah, and they've been highly competitive basically for their entire existence. So that's such a great strategy for the league because now you have these Seattle fans who they're not going to have to slog through. So go back to 76 NFL. Oh, and 26 Buccaneers over the first 26 games. They don't have to slog through that. They can be competitive straight away. They, they've got these. Uh, I'm going to remind you all of the New York Mets. That oh, you're went taking us back further. Two and 120. <laughs> yeah. What year? Yeah. So it? I think ho- hockey in general has hit upon a better formula kind of right now with that, with how they're doing the expansion. It, and it does create some very kind of compelling storylines where, you know, uh, basically the, uh, the Kraken could end up with a goaltender that's essentially gone the path to the Hall of Fame. Right. It's just unbelievable. And how, what a fun enterprise to go through building this team. So we, we, we no, and I mean, of course, course, they have they have a lot of really interesting analytical challenges in terms of their decision making, because do they take somebody like Carey Price, who is obviously a, a wonderful goaltender, but is 33 years old? It's, it's kind of, you know, on certainly in the late stages of their career versus kind of investing more in youth. And I mean, right. you know, that's presumably they're running a uh, lot of age trajectory uh, models, et cetera, over there in the Seattle uh well, that uh, raises you know. an interesting question, Shane. Like, what is your what is your discount rate when you build a team? What's the yeah. optimal rate to use? So, you're trying to maximize performance this year, next year, three years from now. I mean, that's just one input into this model, but that's a pretty yeah. un, not obvious 
No, it, 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 it's not obvious at all. And that's without even kind of that's, you know, the cap and cap hits and stuff like that. And the sour right. cap is yet another nuance to all this that, you know, right. needs to be factored in. Just just to point out that I believe the Seattle Kraken hired analytics staff before they hired anybody else. They did. Knowing that this is the most important thing that they get because of that expansion draft. Well, of course, our right. alum, our, our beloved alum, Namita Nandikumar, is the was one of the first analytics hire, uh, hires out there. She moved from Penn to the Eagles and from the Eagles to Kraken. And, and she, it, certainly the Eagles were mistaken in leaving her unprotected. That's right. The Kraken to grab her. <laughs> Hallaby. You got to get on Hallaby about that. They shouldn't have let him away. Got to keep those people signed. Keep your most valuable yep. talent signed. Um, but hockey was always her first love. So she's got, you know, a day in her life tomorrow that she will always remember. I mean, the whole city is fired up, but we're especially excited for Namita being in the middle of that. Did y'all see that they have, they've, they've recruited sports celebrities from decades or, around Seattle to announce these picks in various places? Like Sean Kemp is uh, going to announce somewhere. Um, they've got Seahawks announcing. It's going to be kind of a fun Hopefully day. Ichiro makes an appearance. Yeah. Oh, Ichiro. <laughs> I haven't seen great. it yet, but there's supposed to be an, an article on Ichiro on The Athletic that our buddy and colleague Joe Simmons said was one of the best things he's ever read. So go chase that down. It's Tales of Ichiro. It's only been in the last couple of weeks. Um, I've been reading mm-hmm. it off of The Athletic. All right, so I'll share mine. What has caught my eye? Um, college football, of course, we're all revealing our, uh, our <laughs> college football. But get this, guys. We've talked about the impact of NIL, the name, image, and likeness, new guidelines that have come out this fall, I mean, this summer. As of July 1, um, NCAA athletes can benefit from their name, image, and likeness. So they're signing endorsement deals. And people have speculated on what this would mean on any number of fronts. But they people just haven't known what it would be. Like, what does this who does it? How much does it add up to? Nick Saban was talking at a coaches conference in the last day or two. And they've got a new quarterback. Obviously, Mac Davis graduated. So they have a new Alabama quarterback. It's not even obvious who the starter is. They believe it's going to be Bryce Young. So what do you think in the first month NIL is available? What do you think the presumed, I said Mac Davis, it's Mac Jones. Little throwback. Mac Davis hadn't been on a football field in a while. Mac Jones, on the other hand, was the Alabama quarterback last year. So Bryce Young is the presumptive starting quarterback for the Crimson Tide. How many, what do you think the value of his total endorsements are as of one month into NIL, according to Nick Saban this week? And and can you give me like a little like what's how probable is he to be kind of the starting? Is he pretty pretty hyped coming out of? Let's just say this is a presumptive starter. Presumptive, presumptive starter. Okay, and you can imagine that the presumptive starter at Alabama is a hyped guy. I mean, he's yeah. not Tua, but he's a hyped guy. Oh, I'd say like I mean, just being at Alabama, like a half a million dollars. I don't know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, just based, just based just on Alabama like endorsements alone. Adi, Adi, Adi. I would guess it's higher than that, but uh, I would say it's in the million dollar range, about a million. Or, yeah. one, one month in, Saban says it's almost seven figures, seven figures. Almost a million. The guy hadn't played a college game. He's, he's presumed starter at Alabama. One month into NIL availability, a million dollars. I don't think anybody expected that. I don't think anybody expected that one month. And maybe they expected it from the top 
athletes, the top guys in the game. I don't think people would have said Bryce Young was going to be the top guy. I don't think you'd have said it one month in. I think we're looking at, I think we're looking at big numbers coming down the road. It's just remarkable. Mm-hmm. By the way, what does Saban say? Never miss a recruiting chance. He says, that's because of our brand. That's because of our brand. You think any kids are noticing this? You think that's not going to be a recruiting advantage for Alabama as if they need one? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, uh, yeah, I I would say Alabama probably is a top spot for these student athletes regardless. So, by the way, uh, also college game day going to be with uh, Georgia Clemson just announced today. Georgia Clemson game one, big week one neutral site game in Charlotte should be good fun just now a few weeks away. All right, guys, that has been first half of Wharton Monday. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Work Moneyball. Rolling into Q3 now. Another open mic segment with my longtime collaborators, good friends, and faculty colleagues, Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner. Eric is away. Eric will be back. Guys, a little mailbag of sorts. We had a question. It's been a little bit now since we had this question, but we haven't picked it up. So I want to share. This is from Nicholas Moore. On Twitter, he goes by at NJ Moore Law. NJ Moore Law. Nicholas asks, "Is Otani criminally low at 8.5 million?" But more provocatively, he asks, "What's going to be his impact on the global baseball economy? What's Otani's impact going to be?" Here's the question: Will it be substantially greater than the Sosa McGuire home run race? What was that, guys? Like mid late 90s, late 90s, early 2000s? That was great fun. Will Otani's impact be bigger than the Sosa McGuire? So thanks to Nicholas Moore for that question via Twitter. Appreciate it. You baseball guys probably have a position on this. Well, I would say that 8.5 is absurdly low as a salary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was um, easy. That was easy. I mean, he's worth 30, 35 million a year, easy, maybe 40. Uh, the only question is what kind of contract for someone who's shown a little bit of injury potential. Um, will it, how much is it changing? I don't think so. I think the Sosa McGuire, maybe because I was younger during the Sosa McGuire, that was, Jack was just, you know, I was in the news every day. Baseball yeah. was bigger then. Um, and uh, as incre- remarkable as, so, as Otani is, listen, he's a two-way guy. That's the incredible part. That's, that absolutely is the incredible part. He certainly is kicking up attendance wherever he goes. Um, people do want to see him. I had the privilege of watching him play against the Yankees in person a couple weeks back. He had two home runs. I'm going to probably tell my grandkids about that. Um, yeah, no, and I mean, I do think, I mean, I kind of agree with you. I don't think it's going to quite have the impact of those, like, kind of, you know, the the the, the home run chases of, like, the late 90s and stuff like that. But I, I think he, he, he is an incredibly unique player, and it comes at a very good time, I think, because I think, you know, so much of the sort of press – in in baseball these days, like the kind of negative press in baseball these days is that, you know, in part due to analytics and other things that like it's mm-hmm. become almost like two rope, you know, like it's become two of a kind of predictable, not much happening kind of sport. And then this kind of complete unique, relatively unprecedented, at least in the last century, player comes <laughs> yeah. along. Yeah. I think I think he is. I think he's generating uh, to the extent that there's positive excitement in baseball right now. He is generating a very large amount of it. It might be a little. I I, I worry it's a little fleeting because he's one injury away from suddenly not generating That's that excitement right. anymore. Right. right? I, and I, so, I'd love to be able to. I mean, his the fact he doesn't speak English. This was in the news. Um, 
I probably has a little less uh, is, you know, there, you know, as as an in- interpreter and that probably uh, kind of diminishes the, uh, the potential for the international or the national wide uh, attention. So I would say that I think a, a one man event is almost always going to be less compelling than a head to head competition. Between yeah, of course. And, and so yeah. that, that the Sosa McGuire thing had this back and forthness that was just riveting. And as you said, was an every night, every night kind of thing. And I'm biased like Adi is because I was in Chicago at the time. And that was kind of yeah. my grad school baseball watching time. But um, as but it's but it's wonderful to see this kind of story in Major League Baseball all the same. Speaking of baseball, I saw today or yesterday that half the Phillies roster supposedly is unvaccinated. It probably is representative. I just it continues to be beyond me that a player on yeah. a team sport, a player on a team sport, because the consequences are so far beyond that particular player that they don't get themselves vaccinated, but this is just, just ran through the code. Yeah. No, no, I mean, right. Did the Yankees and somehow that yep. didn't hurt their performance. Yeah. And I, 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 I agree with you completely. I, I, I mean, I think I, I heard that Michael Irvin actually was interviewed. I, I think this was uh, this within this past week um, because the, the Dallas Cowboys are one of the teams that hasn't hit the kind of 85, whatever threshold it is for okay. vaccination that the NFL has uh, kind of tried to try to set up for teams. Yeah. Yeah. And he he had a very similar point. He's like, you know, this is a team sport. Two weeks without a particular player is a very big deal, especially in football. Yeah, and it's just blow. You know, it's mind blowing that you know these athletes, you know, won't. You know, I I, that, I get love vaccinated. it. I love it. It's Morton Moneyball and Michael Irvin have the same line. That that must, yeah, it must it's be rare, rare but true. It must be close to truth if we're lined up with Michael Irvin on this one. This is good. Um, Yankees playing better baseball now, Adi. Are you happy? Well, I mean, so Judge goes down with COVID, and I believe he has my, a mild case, um, actual symptomatic. The Yankees have had COVID before, many baseball players, but there's nary, nary been a sniffle, um, yet they go into quarantine. But I think these are Delta, and Delta produces symptoms at a higher rate. Um, nobody's, the Yankees aren't telling you who's vaccinated and who's not. They've admitted that some of the cases are unvaccinated. But they are admitting also that some of them are breakthrough cases. Urshela and, and, uh, and Judge are the premier marquee players that are out. The Yankees have lost everybody practically to in, either injury or COVID. They go, to, they go and play Boston, who has owned the Yankees, embarrassingly so, this year, Shane says with a smirk or, or respond to it. And I've had to, had to be just horrified at the way the Yankees have played against the Red Sox, who are leading the division handily, that they take two games in a row – uh, one in a, in a rain-shortened game with with uh, Garrett Cole finally pitching well without the without the sticky stuff to to uh, to help him along. He dominated, and then the game got canceled early um, after seven innings because of rain. And then the Yankees won, won, scored went out and scored nine runs and beat them nine to one with a bunch of nobodies that they call up. Well, the Yankees the Yankees should take. They, they they should use this COVID excuse to overhaul their roster, dump all those expensive. Yeah. You know, high paid, you know, high paid like stars and just build, build from a build yeah, from like their farm system like they did back nothing. in the late 90s. Yep. So the, this just reinforces to me how random baseball is more than anything. You've been you've been impossible to it's been impossible for you to explain the Yankees from like week one this year. It's just kind of baffling. But you mentioned Garrett Cole and I, I talk about something that caught my eye. This New York Times piece, I always attribute to Kevin Queeley even though Kevin was only one of you know three or four co-authors on the piece, but he's a data viz guys, data viz guy that they have at the upshot at the New York times. We've had him on the show before. Kevin's phenomenal. 
but they did some, they did a remarkable piece on spin rates in major league baseball. I think they went with every pitch since 2017. So over a million, well over a million pitches. And they looked at spin rates overall by pitcher. They have some beautiful um, visualizations. What did y'all think about this dive from the upshot on your sport? Oh, I thought it was well, fantastic. I, I mean, A, it's a great, great visualizations, I thought, because they kind of were able to sort of show trajectories through the season for different pitchers and, and, and kind of, you know, what sort of has, has happened since the uh, Major League Baseball supposedly started cracking down on, on, on the sticky stuff. And of course, it's, 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 so it's interesting kind of from a methodological or visualization point of view. It's also obviously interesting to see the specific players yeah, that kind right. of get identified. I mean, Garrett right. Cole obviously is one of them. Um, um, what's his name? Garrett Richards for the Red Sox was another one that showed a pretty dramatic uh, change since, uh, since June. So it's kind of interesting to just sort of see some of these uh, prominent uh, um, kind of pitchers, you know, sort of the data kind of, you know, being pretty suggestive towards them. And well, so listen, saw- Garrett Cole still throws really hard and uh, ends games at 9,900 miles an hour. I think he's recovering. I think there was a, a definitely a reaction. Right, right. Uh, I think he, he, he had to learn how to pitch without using it, and I think he's going to recover. He was certainly one of the prominent um, drops, but he, he dropped from insanely high spin rate to just ridiculously high. So I okay. think he'll recover and he'll do well. Um, but the nice thing to see is that hitters are doing better. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's easier to, to get put the ball in play. Um, mm-hmm. the, the fastballs don't, don't you know, they, they behave like they're supposed to. Well, they, 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 they made it precise in this article to their credit. They, the average drop I think was 200 revolutions. And that's from like, yeah. I don't know, 2,600 to 2,400 or something. And they said, well, what does that mean? They said that, that that's about an inch of movement. They said, they said, and, 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 and somebody's like, well, when the bat's only three inches wide, an inch can yeah. make a big difference. It's like, that's, it is a that game really of inches. kind of puts it in perspective. The other yeah. thought that they added there at the end was, these, these batters are conditioned over time to understand what happens with baseballs. They've, their whole life, they've been trained. They've seen thousands, tens of thousands of these pitches. And then over the last couple of years, something different starts happening. That's really hard to adapt to. They're conditioned yeah. for one thing. And this is a highly instinctive. Especially because it must be, yeah, so extensive and like almost muscle memory training that yeah, like, you know, be. it, it must be very difficult to kind of retrain on the fly in a short amount of time. All right. So another uh, another event over the weekend was the British Open and Colin Morikawa. I kind of think he's a darling of the show. We've talked about him a little bit over the last year. He broke out last year with the PGA. The notable thing among um, one of the most notable things about his victory was that he's I think he's the first golfer ever to win two majors the first time he played them. So there are a handful of guys who've won a major the first time they played it. But I don't think anybody's won two so he won the PGA the first time he played it, and he won the British Open the first time he played it. And I say he's a darling on the show for a couple of reasons. Uh, he's a, he's a Dan Rappaport, the, the Golf Digest writer we've had on here a few times that we enjoy so much. Dan has done a piece on Morikawa, and so he's, he's, he's shared with us some details on him. But then going back even further, he's famously this guy with low dispersion. Famously, and he, they've done, people have done – studies on him. They've done videos on him. He hits a six iron with about the same dispersion that other professional golfers have on their nine iron. And so even though he's not one of these big long knocks that, that seem to get a lot of the attention, it doesn't matter because even if he's got three clubs longer into the green, he's not going to give up any accuracy. And it's just a fascinating, it's a fascinating way to play. 
people, yeah. you know, you, especially, especially when, when at a time when Deschambeau is getting so much yes. attention for kind of the essentially the like the opposite strategy. That's right. That's right. Um, I mean, look, I've, I've kind of, I think I worked through my stuff with DeChambeau sometime in the this summer I've softened on DeChambeau. Finally, I think it's the bullshit um, feud he has with Kepka and I'm, and Kepka gets old pretty quickly. And so I'm kind of, I'll take whoever Kepka's in the feud with. He also had some kind of, there was some controversy with him earlier in the British open week. Cause he had some yeah, the, choice things to say about his driver, his, like his, his, his own sponsor's driver. Yeah, that's pretty rough to say. Those guys pay them a lot to yeah. play their equipment. I would think you'd keep that stuff private. I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not saying I love the guy, but I have softened on him a little bit. But speaking of guys I love, Jordan Spieth, second place. Mm-hmm. This is a good question for Bradlow. It's like, okay, Spieth's been competitive. Is it good or bad that he multiple times here? It's a good question in general. Another one, um, Ustazen, again, Final day leaderboard competitive throughout the tournament, just like it was at the U.S. Open a, a few weeks ago, and didn't get it done. In general, in golf, Shane, what do you think? A guy that kind of hangs around the leaderboard, tourney after tourney, major after major, but doesn't win, net positive or net negative? Well, as opposed to him not even hanging around the leaderboard, I mean, I think I think it's a net positive. I mean, I you know, I I one of the uh, best golf facts that Bradlow constantly kind of. Uh, you know, comes at us with is, you know, talking about Jack Nicholas and his 18 major victories or something like that. And the fact that he was second place, something like 18 or 19 times as well. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think you want to be as, as high up on that leaderboard as possible. The fact that you're not first in a particular tournament. I mean, I, Jordan Spieth obviously has had some kind of famous sort of, you know, kind of collapses and that can't be good psychologically. Well, singular. I, I think singular. I think it was sufficiently yeah. bad that one is enough to establish. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, but so, I mean, that obviously probably isn't good, but I, I, I think if you're up there more often, I mean, it's, it's, I almost feel like to argue against it being a good thing to be up there is almost kind of the, you know, kind of the, the really classic argument it. of like, is, is it, does it reflect badly on a, on a, on a team to make it to the Super Bowl but not win it? Yeah, right. Like, you know, our friends in Buffalo, our friends in yeah. Minnesota and the generation before that. Um, or, 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 I mean, like going back, I mean, you know, I mean, I think Tom Brady has kind of changed the argument substantially since then. But back when he only had four Super Bowls, but had lost some versus Montana, who had four Super Bowl, uh, won all, you know, had four Super Bowls and no losses. Yeah. I mean, we it, it seemed like people were kind of discrediting and for making it to the Super Bowl and Good. then losing it. Good. That's right. And and obviously a lot of this depends on our old friend Chance. And if you've got mm-hmm. a healthy appreciation for the role Chance is playing, then you make fewer attributions. You tell fewer That's stories exactly about right. why that yep. guy's in there but not winning. And you just say, look, Chance works against him. And if that's your model of the world and you want guys who are like always floating around top five, top ten, they're always making playoff runs, getting in Super Bowls, and you're slow to say – yeah, but they can't get it done because they don't know how to like close. You're slow to tell that story. And so I think it's a more parsimonious, more sophisticated story to say, yes, Spieth, he's got it going on again. He's got, he's, he's, he's not going to be back until he wins some one of these majors, but we like what we're seeing from him. And I love what you said, Shane, about Nicholas, because it was just last week that we were sharing that information again from our friend Rappaport. He had tweeted Nicholas's record in the British open over 18 years from like 63 to 80. 18 British Opens, three wins, and something like 15 out of 18 in the top four. 
which is incredible. just what an incredible. Yeah, that's just incredible. <laughs> but and, that, that's and, and such, not, not, nothing but positive credit should be given to Nicholas for that. Yeah, right. No, no, he didn't you get know. it done, Shane. He, he, yeah. He, <laughs> what, only three wins in there? What, only three wins? Exactly. Um, uh, one quick note, we've got game six of the NBA finals. It's been a, a marathon playoff. It always feels that way with me to the NBA. It really is a second season. Milwaukee has they started out down two to nothing and they've come back three straight wins. They've reclaimed home court and they're favored by five tonight against Phoenix. And so this thing either will go a little bit longer or will be, or will be resolved before this show is even posted. So we'll save any discussion for later, but um, it's been a compelling series and Milwaukee may get it done yet. If they don't, then Chris Paul's still in there, which is also something to pull for. It's kind of fun not to have too strong, an interest on either side of it. Guys, before we end up, I want to hear a little bit from you on any thoughts about what's going on with the Olympics. We've been prepping for it. We've been excited about it. We have a guest next, next quarter, next section um, about it, but it seems like it's still kind of in play that maybe the pandemic is going to screw it up yet. What, what's your sense of how hard the Olympics should push to make this thing happen? Are they, has it been foolish to let it get this far? Do you think it's going to get done? Like what, what are you thinking about pandemic versus Olympics right now? You know, there's the reason why it's such a, an issue is that Japan is virtually unvaccinated. Um, I think it's about 5% if the, if the numbers I saw most recently. Okay, real quick, why is that? Um, I don't know. Um, I really, I mean, I think I'll, 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 I'll take, I'll take one speculation because Australia is actually surprisingly unvaccinated to New Zealand, yeah. et cetera. I, th- I think these Island nations, um, perhaps because, you know, they have been able to kind of control things so well, where maybe a little, you could call it overconfidence in their ability to kind of control the disease without vaccination. You can also say that like Japan, you know, I mean, again, America's catching some flack internationally for trying so hard to vaccinate its own population at the expense of poor nations. You know, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, you know, to the extent that it's altruistic, we're kind of like, wait, you know, waiting a little bit because they felt that they were. These true? are not poor countries. Let's just be clear. No, yeah, no right. but, but that, that's right. They were defaulting a little bit more to poor countries. Shane, I, I'd forgotten how much of a uh, what's the right name for a Japanophile? What's the right term for that? Because Shane is definitely that. He definitely is. He, he trains in retirement in Tokyo. I think he's mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's right. That's air. right. <laughs> would you yeah, have ever um, considered would you have ever considered going, Shane? Is the Olympics? There, is there, yeah, is there I would love to. Yeah, yeah, no, I would have loved to. I mean, it, you know, it obviously, <laughs> you know, I, I, I not this not, year, not not in their current form. And I, you know, kind of coming back to what you said before. I mean, I mean, I doubt. I doubt that. I mean, I would be surprised if they postponed or or, or canceled this late stage in the game. But I, you know, if I if I was running this show, I, I why not just wait till next year? It seems kind of crazy that they were to well, me at least that they were trying to put it together this summer. My, my, my biggest, I mean, they, they could have moved it. I mean, the United mm-hmm. States could have hosted this Olympics without even blinking. We have enough capacity. We have venues and well, we have vaccines. Don't everywhere. exaggerate, Adi, without blinking. This is amazing. Without well, blinking. With, with a it's a huge logistical time. challenge. Yeah. I think with a two month lead time, it could have happened. Two months. I don't well, think I, so. I, I, you don't think I, so? I can't put on no. a people no. with two months lead no. time. No. No, and I mean, all the kind of local consternation about the yeah, Olympics and I'll true. bring all these in, that wouldn't happen in America. You'd be like, L.A. LA would be like, oh, yeah, sure. If anybody wants to come, come on in. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> my, my general consensus is that there's 
it's not exactly like the bubble and the and the NBA, but they're taking extreme precautions. Um, the the only another reason it couldn't happen in America, by the way. Yeah, yeah no, but right. I don't I don't think this is this is not a risk to the athletes. It's 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 a concern that the Japan population has first widespread among its own population. Yeah. Okay. So that it does seem like it's one thing to keep athletes from each other, but it's it's a, it seems categorically easier to keep athletes yes. from the broader and, population. And I will say that there's a huge confusion, even at this late date, that COVID, even the vaccine, the vaccine, most of the athletes have been vaccinated, even if among they're not, they are the prime, these are the healthiest people on the planet. Right. COVID is just not an issue for athletes and, and their entourages who are undoubtedly young and healthy as well and sure should be. And their entourages have been pared down to practically nothing, almost sadly. Um, the biggest concern and the only concern is, does it spread to the Japanese population that is largely unprotected mm-hmm. and probably at ser- potential serious risk? And they need to be kept at a distance. But people are concerned because it's going to be Japanese policemen yeah. and Japanese, you know, they're, they're around, say, are, right? And, are the athletes right? going to be doing the ones uh, cleaning up the pool and stuff like that? No yeah. shit. Good, right? There good, you go. Good. So, yeah. All right, guys, real, real quickly on the way out here, uh, real quick. An Olympic event that you're most looking forward to watching. An Olympic event you're most looking forward to watching. Skateboarding. What? New to this Olympics. Oh, goodness gracious. Okay. Ha. Adi, give me a sport. Swimming. I know you're oh, swimming. Of course. Swimming. Talk swimming. You want a different one? What else? Yeah, what else you got? I'm going to watch, watch the baseball. <laughs> <laughs> How about softball? Softball's back since 2008. Softball. I love it. U.S. Yeah, women so both softball and baseball are back. Yeah. U.S. women lost the first time in like 22 years against the Japanese in 2008, and they didn't have it in 12 and 16, and so they're back. That's going to be a bit of a story. See if they can reclaim that thing. All right, guys, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We're going to talk more Olympics in the next segment with our special guest. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Rolling into the fourth quarter now, our interview segment, at least in the time of COVID, it has become our interview segment. We are welcoming onto the show for the first time, delighted to meet and have a chance to visit with Russell Mark. Russell is the manager of high performance for USA Swimming. Pretty cool job title, pretty cool job, manager of high performance for USA Swimming, especially on point right now as the USA swim team is in Tokyo preparing for the Olympics. Russell, welcome. Thank you for being with us today. So happy to be here. Great to chat with you guys. Looking forward to it. Thanks, man. Well, especially, especially appreciate your being up. It's We're recording on Tuesday afternoon, U.S. time. It is Wednesday morning, Tokyo time. You're a good man for making space for us. What's, what's, what's the mood over there? What do you, what, what, how, how much of a buzz is there in the days leading up to the Olympics? I can't imagine how how exciting it must be this particular moment. Oh, it is extremely exciting. It's really, it's 5 a.m. right here, uh, here right now. And it's really not hard to wake up just because we are that close. Uh, We start competition in a few days, the Olympics start in a few days. And there won't be a lot of sleep happening, even as tired as we'll be. It's just, there's going to be day after day of us, hopefully doing really well and, and a lot of awesome things happening. So it's not hard to wake up and to get going and to think about this and to be excited. Mm-hmm. Well, there's so much to talk about. Let, let's, 
let's initially understand where you're coming from. You have an interesting background. You swam, you swam some growing up. I think UVA might've been the last of your swimming, but you also studied engineering, aerospace engineering. You actually went to work for Pratt Whitney, Pratt Whitney for a while, and then somehow went from that to what you're doing now. How, how did this transpire? What was the course here? Yeah. So like any student athlete in college, I double majored basically in engineering and in swimming. And when I swam at, at UVA, um, shout out to the who's who were the women's national champions this past year. All right. Um, and then um, from there, I did go into industry as, a, as I thought I would doing some engineering and then took an internship at USA Swimming. That internship has led to almost a 20 year career in the sport and didn't ever realize where it would take me. And now this is my fifth Olympics and just really honored to be working with such great people as, as long, as much as working in a sport that I love. So I imagine high performance kind of means the same thing now as it did 20 years from now at some level, you want to compete at the most important events and you want to win goals at Olympics and world championships. But I can imagine the means by which you reach high performance might've changed some over these 20 years. When you look back on the time since you've been working for Team USA, what are the big changes in the tools you guys use? Man, when you talk about the means that I, the, the tools and the means that I use, 20 years ago, I was looking at tons of VHS tape. I was, <laughs> I was carrying around these crazy contraptions in order to look at video from an underwater perspective and look at underwater video. Um, I was burning DVDs for a while and now all that stuff is in the past. So probably the biggest change over the last 20 years, just as we are, as in normal everyday life, just the accessibility of information of video and Mm -hmm. swimming has always been a little bit behind in terms of watching film because of how hard it is to really see where the action is happening, which is underwater. So whereas Mm -hmm. I mean, there's always been maybe a challenge in terms of capturing video and, and sharing video with people in all sports. In swimming, there's an extra layer of challenge because to, in order to see where the action was happening, you had to get a camera underneath the surface and then be able to get the video from that and transmit it. Mm-hmm. My, my sense is that this, this video uh, evolution that has happened in swimming has been very important for the sport itself and that it's a little bit like what, it's, it's, it's kind of even a, a more macro version of what we've seen in baseball where people are, are mechanically doing the thing differently as a result of video. To what extent is that true? Absolutely true. I, I would say, I mean, just being able to share information and, and see what, our, what the best swimmers are doing, see what Michael Phelps is doing, see what Caleb Dressel and Katie Ledecky are doing. It has just brought in everybody's ideas as to what, what, pe- what strokes should look like. And just that in itself, without much intervention, has helped the level of the sport grow. And it's been really awesome and just really fun to see people get faster and the depth of the sport get faster, which is what we're seeing at Olympic trials, at, um, at other levels of the sport. Just, you know, not just the top end athletes getting better, but just the level of, you know, going down to eight deep or 16 deep. So let me make sure I understand what you're saying, because I think one version of what you're saying is there are the best, the best swimmers on, on Team USA over the last few years. Um, it's possible that they are 
they just swim naturally differently than others. And, and by, by um, we watch enough people, we see millions of people swim. And then the ones that swim best turn out that they have discovered and just gone about almost naturally. They've been coached, but they're doing things differently. And we can just watch them and then we can learn and adapt how we swim. So Katie Ledecky actually changes the form of the sport in some sense. Phelps changes the form of the sport. Is this true? Is this kind of what's happened? Absolutely. So, I mean, you look at baseball or, I mean, I grew up as a baseball fan and, and when I was a kid, I had my favorite baseball players and I would try to copy how they s- swung a bat. Mm-hmm. And you can easily see that on TV because baseball is so accessible. And I definitely the same thing happens in swimming. So the fact that when Michael Phelps wins eight gold medals, everyone tries to copy what he's doing technically. And that is what's, that's what happens with more video access and not just what you see above water, but what you see underwater that then kids will start copying what they do. And yes, that improves the, the level of swimming at the entire sport. So Russell, give us an example of something somebody has done that has kind of rippled them through the sport, like it's a stroke or a kick or a, a turn or whatever it is that somebody did that really had a big impact that people started copying. Yeah. I mean, right now, um, what you'll see is in, in the upcoming Olympics is you'll see Caleb Dressel. He's the fastest male sprinter right now and male swimmer in the world in the 50 free, 100 free, 100 fly. You'll see Caleb crush his start and crush everybody on the start. He will get off the blocks with such speed, explosiveness, power, and not even that, just take it underwater to 15 meters and be noticeably ahead of everybody. So with that, I mean, Kale's been doing that for years. So people in swimming have, have seen it for a while and, and you see how he comes off the blocks and he just drives with his face, his, his body just really explodes, explodes forward and people will copy that. And I would say that's probably the most recent thing is they try to copy how Caleb starts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Russell, the other thing, I mean, you've kind of been talking about how kind of video technology has been kind of helping, I guess, swimmers essentially uh, emulate kind of the, the, the best swimmers in, in, in their particular, uh, you know, discipline. Um, but I, I, I guess a lot of ways in which video technology is used in other sports is also kind of like to correct kind of minor sort of like, I guess, flaws in like a, your, your own kind of stroke and stuff like that, because you kind of get that immediate feedback. Uh, to what extent are you kind of is, is that a big part of kind of, you know, uh, the, the, the development video aided development at, at the kind of Olympic level? Or is that sort of more about like, you know, in, at the lower levels of swimming? Yeah, absolutely. We're definitely doing a lot of biomechanical corrections. Uh, Our national team, our Olympic team is incredibly used to watching themselves on film now, which, you know, you're talking this, this whole generation of Olympian right now has been used to seeing themselves underwater, above water um, their entire career. So by the by the time this Olympic team gets here, I can show them a piece of video and they will know what they're looking for. They don't necessarily even need to be coached. The coaching and the direction definitely helps them, but this Olympic team is so in tune with their strokes and so aware of what they're doing and what they should look like. So yes, there's a lot of biomechanical corrections happening and and just fine tuning happening even now. Um, 
everyone wants to see how they look. And, and just yesterday we were running up and down the pool, just filming video and, and watch it. And the athletes and coaches are watching it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Russell, I have a hundred questions for you as a former swimmer. Um, I kind of know how it was and I sort of saw how things changed over the years, even though I was no, not really in the pool anymore. I remember as a kid, you during breaststroke, you kept your head out of the water. If you went underwater, they, they disqualified you. Um, and in fact, and then later on, everyone seems to take every stroke and they're all underwater and they come up. So th- that was a, a big point that being underwater is really helpful. But what I want to ask about is technology. If there's anything other than video that's being used to gain self-improvement. And I'll just give you an analogy because just about two hours ago, I spoke to a former baseball player who said he basically went from a 220 to a 400 hitter at college level by taking 10,000 swings under the Rapsodo machine. So Rapsodo is the machine that tells you exactly how hard you're hitting it and at what angle when you're in a batting cage. Is there something like that for swimming that tells you like how fast you're going instantaneously? And what he described was this, this biomechanical feedback that he developed just thinking on his own, like what, what created that great, that great response. And then he'd start to figure it out. Is there something that's happening in the pool that gives you that biomechanical feedback to the swimmer? Yeah. So we're not, we don't have any tools to calculate instantaneous velocity, which is, I think would be the most helpful uh, and something where that doesn't burden a swimmer with equipment hanging off of them, because that's definitely a, that would definitely change how somebody's interacting with the water at that point. So mm-hmm. we're definitely using video to collect data, just like so many other sports. So, um, and I listened to the segment that you all did with Pat 40 and Pat mentioned using stroke rate and which is how many cycles they're taking in how, in a minute or how many seconds it takes for them to take one cycle. So in running or walking, it would be how long it takes them to take one step. So this is a cycle of swimming. So how many times do you move, how long it takes you to move your arms? Um, so your cadence. And so we're using that to determine, we're using video to help us figure that out and help us uh, track cycle counts over length. So it's, uh, we're definitely using video to collect data to, help athletes understand not just what they're doing, but how, you know, how effective it is to, and, and, and to help track that. Is, uh, one, one specific question on that real quick. Can, do y'all have it now where can, if I'm a swimmer, can I throw my stroke, my tape up against somebody I want to swim like, and just compare it? Is that how, how close can you make those comparisons? I, we talked, we've talked to race car drivers, for example, before, and they know where the best drivers are as they go around the track, what line they take. And then they can show their car on top of that line. So they know exactly where they deviate. It's a, it's another, it's a way, it's a version of this feedback Adi's talking about is, do you do those kinds of things with these videos as well? Yeah. So the comparison is really hard in swimming and that's one of the most difficult things to make data just broadly applicable to people, uh, to everyone in the sport is because of how individual the sport is. So just an example, we have right um, currently, the top two breaststroker women's 100 breaststrokers in the world right now coming out of Olympic trials. We have Lily King, the defending Olympic gold medalist and Lydia Jacoby, a teenage teenager from Alaska. And they swim completely different ways. So Lily's the number one world record holder and she swims. It takes her just about one second to take one stroke. And Lydia Jacoby is 
taking 1.3 seconds for one stroke. And she's the number two breaststroker currently wow. in the world. So wow. we're talking 30% slower in this, in her cycles. And you're talking one and two and that one point one second versus 1.3 seconds might not sound like a lot, you know, in terms of time, it doesn't maybe feel like a lot, but in swimming, it's a ton of time. You're talking 40 strokes. It takes for Lily King to finish a hundred meters and 30 strokes for, for, uh, for Lydia Jacoby. That's for you. Is, is there not is there not a consensus on what's most efficient, or is it truly that heterogeneous depending on people's physiology? It reminds me of Lance Armstrong. You know, it's now all question marks and tainted because of drugs. But it wasn't wasn't he a cadence like revolutionary? Didn't he just say you guys are just spinning too slow? You got to crank it up, and then all of a sudden people start realizing that's better. But there's not such a thing in swimming strokes. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's it's so unique, and I and it's unique to someone's physiology, to someone's physical, um, physical build, um, and to their range of motion, their flexibility and, and, you know, going to, you know, copying strokes, it is so hard to do that as well. So I mentioned people trying to copy Michael Phelps. He had such incredible range of motion in his shoulders. So if you try to copy him, if you didn't have that kind of range of motion, it probably wasn't going to be that, effective and you probably weren't going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me, can I ask a question? So when, when you have Jacoby swimming at 1.3 and King going at 1.0, what is compensating? What's the compensation mechanism so that they're essentially swimming at more or less the same velocity? Is it, is it does one just that is the glide? Is it the glide? Is it the, the force on the, on the water? I mean, what is it? that creates them, allows them to swim at the same speed, even though 1.3 is a lot slower than 1.0. Yeah. So it's definitely, you know, the mechanics that they put into, I mean, yeah, Lydia is gliding a little bit longer. Um, it's interesting. I mean, she's got a unique, they both have unique strokes there. These are the two extremes. You have Lily who's really looks like she's spinning, just like revving up the tempo and you have Lydia just really long. And so it is definitely just mostly mechanical. I'd say, I mean, Lydia as an 18 year old is still, or 17, 17 year old, but um, still physically maturing as a, as a person. So um, it's not like she's incredibly strong, you know, this um, she's still a developing person. So uh, a lot of it is just in mechanics. Mm-hmm. Russell, we've been talking a lot about, technical and video what about this what about the training side and uh, conditioning and and in particular um tapering and 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 hit trying to hit peak because you guys are doing a lot that's trying to get people ready to be at their best whenever the events start can what have you learned in that sphere over the last 20 years how do you guys prepare for a big event differently now than you did then i suspect sports science and understanding of training has evolved yeah. And that's also a little bit unique from athlete to athlete, from program to program to the style that you train, the events that you're wrestling for. We have, I think by this time, hopefully we figured out how to do a really good job tapering for, and that's what's unique about the Olympics is we have our Olympic trials and then we have Olympics and they're separated by 33 days. And we're trying to have a peak performance at right. trials and a peak performance at the Olympics. So 
you're we're trying to swim your two lifetime bests within 30 days of each or, yeah, or Russell, about 30 days. Y'all get to decide when the trials are, right? So yes. ideally, ideally, probably, presumably you've chosen them to be a certain distance before to maximize this double peak thing. Yeah, and it's definitely hard and there's a lot of stress related to choosing the team 30 days before the Olympics. But what we get is we get someone, we get a team of people who are really hot and are, are right. We're going to ride the hot hand going into the Olympics. So mm-hmm. our chances of having two good swims are really good when we have that, um, that peaking two peaks within almost a month. So, okay. So now you're, you're talking the language of, of we have a fourth co-host here, uh, who loves momentum stories, despite being a hardcore scientist, he loves anything about momentum. So you would be telling a bit of a momentum story right now. And is that the case in swimming? So some sports do have a lot of momentum. For example, golf, we know these guys do get in little um, peaks and valleys that persist across tournaments. Are you suggesting that swimming is somewhat the same? That people kind of oscillate these long waves. They tend to be higher performance or lower performance sequentially. Yeah. I mean, you think about it. If if we were to select the team, as most countries do in April, in the spring, and then try to retaper, you're going to have people that, probably do better, but you're also going to have people that maybe don't do as well and don't hit that taper again. So, and that's interesting because Australia has always selected their team in March or April, and this is their first Olympics where they've mimicked us and done it. uh, Just, they did their trials a week before ours. Okay. Super interesting. Uh, I love, I have to say, I love what this story here, because it's really fascinating because essentially what you're saying from a random variable point of view is that everybody has a, a true talent plus an amount, some noise and that that, but that noise is kind of persistent for a little bit of time. So if you take everyone's, so when you measure them at the trials, you're getting their, their true talent plus the noise. And when you get them 30 days later, you're still at that same noise level. And if that noise level is at all fairly large, which I think it kind of is surprisingly so you're going to sweep the Olympics. I'm worried for you guys if Australia is copying you this year, because I think this has been a tremendous advantage for the, for the American Olympic team. Now, I'm going to get to that to, to question now, which is how big is that noise? In other words, take a great swimmer, or maybe not the greatest of the greatest, but one who is right up there. Um, if you take that sort of oscillation in their ability, in their times, if you will, over, over, over the years – um, where P is their 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 actual average true talent um, in in um, I guess I'm trying to get figure out the right unit of analysis in in probability of winning or margin of seconds or whatever it is how much is that noise on a on a sort of six months by six month window how much does it really shift and Russell let me give you just a slight bit more context for that we a theme on our show that we've kind of warmed to over the seven years is that people underestimate within athlete variation. We're so obsessed with between athlete variation and identifying the better from the worse that we neglect how much even the same guy or woman moves around. And now that varies some by sport. And Adi is essentially asking you about that second issue. Like how much does performance vary within a swimmer over a career, over a year? How big is that relative to something else? Yeah, I mean, amongst the greatest like Michael Phelps, like Katie Ledecky, like Caleb Dressel, you're going to see probably them be a little bit more consistent at that top level. 
no matter which time, which year it is, uh, no matter how many months apart it is, it's probably the folks that aren't, I would say, I mean, we're still talking great athletes, but maybe not the, that elite of the elite, you know, not the Simone manuals, not, not the, you know, Lily Kings and, or, you know, those are the ones that are, even our, we have a pretty young team team filled with a lot of teenagers and they're still figuring out how they can rise to that point. And hopefully they're in this oscillating trajectory, but oscillating upward, you know, overall generally moving in that direction and then hopefully can flatten out at near the top. And that's kind of what we're looking at in performance with our, the noise means a lot and it probably means less for that great athlete, even though those great athletes love that moment, but, but they'll, pretty much you can count on them just like you have your big time performers in all major sports. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Potential source for uh, kind of, I guess, within swimmer variation is, is location. So I, I have kind of a, I guess a, a couple of questions about kind of pertaining to the Olympics specifically being in Tokyo this year. Um, to what extent is that very extreme time change? And, you know, the, the athletes probably even relative to other Olympics have been probably are, are there for a less amount of time. Like, does that time change affect performance? And again, noting that Australia is in a much closer time zone to Japan than America is. Um, and the second part of that is, is kind of like the actual sort of beyond time change, kind of like a home sort of like, you know, sort of like home field advantage and, and whether that's actually as relevant without fans there this time. Yeah. I mean, all that definitely plays a factor in our preparation for the time change. I mean, yeah, Australia is one hour away, uh, one time zone away. And obviously it's 5 a.m. here. It's 4 p.m. on the uh, on the East Coast in the U.S., there's a much bigger time change. We would have typically, our, our original plan was probably to do it, uh, was to do a camp in Asia leading into coming up to Tokyo. But given COVID this year, we're, we had to shift our plans. So we went to Hawaii. So we went probably about halfway across and with crossing the dateline, the time shift wasn't as huge, but definitely that goes into what we're doing and what we're, I mean, you see it, you know, with teams, with NFL teams, people talk about, you know, going from coast to coast or when they play games in London. So definitely the the time change is a factor in performance and how we prepare and how many days we, we try to be in the, in a similar or the same time zone. And then, yeah, not having fans, that is, uh, that, that would probably impact performance, but you know, it's going to impact everybody's performance the same because everybody's going to be without fans racing at the same time. So uh, I know that our team loves being in front of a crowd uh, our, our team loves performing, but I mean, we're going to bring, we're going to try to generate our own noise as we always do. Team USA tends to just be really loud and be really great cheerleaders always. So I think now actually with less fans, there's more opportunity for our athletes and coaches to make a lot of noise and be heard in the stadium. That's great. Russell, we've talked about the technical side of swimming. We've talked about the conditioning side and tapering and you've alluded to the mental side and some athletes getting up for these big moments. It seems like all three of those components must be central to your job as manager of high performance. Can you say a little bit more about what it means to be manager of high performance? What does that draw on? What are you doing? And, and this, I mean, I mean, this sounds facetious, but I mean it quite sincerely. What, what are you good at? Like what, if we were to ask others about what does Russell really bring to the table here? Why is he on the Olympic team as a manager of high performance? Where do you think your strengths are? 
Yeah, I think what I'm most known for across the sport in, in the U.S. is technique and for breaking down video and for talking about strokes. Okay. But I definitely think that one one you talk about the mental side and 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 my appreciation for the mental side of it, whether it's mental health or just creating a great environment and a great vibe. In this, I mentioned that we are 33 days between the end of trials and the start of our game and the start of games. And what we try to do as a team, as a kind of logistics and operations and performance team, is try to manage that environment and create the best environment and vibe so that our team can perform. Because we can't control the performance. We can't control that execution 100%, but we can create a great energy. And that, I think, is our secret sauce. That's our magic juice. And, you know, if you, if anybody watched the Rio games, there was a camera in our team area where we all prepare and warm up. And you always just saw our athletes, coaches, and staff just jumping up and down and cheering really loud and just, yeah, feeding off each other. So there's that momentum in performance, but there's that momentum in energy too. And so, yeah, there's that we can't measure. That's so hard to measure uh, what that contribution is, but I think that's such an important ingredient for what we do. Mm -hmm. Russell, we're down to just the last few minutes with you. Uh, Curious if you would point us to any storylines when you think about what questions are on your mind about the team's performance or athletes or athletes times events or events, like what do you think if you want to educate us as, you know, typical swim watchers once every four years, or what would you point us towards beyond kind of the big obvious ones? Yeah. I mean, you do have our superstars. You have Caleb who Caleb Dressel, who I mentioned a few times who, was an Olympian in 2016, didn't win individual medal, and now he's probably the favorite for three individual events. Um, you have Lily King, like I mentioned, who was the defending 100 breaststroke champion. Simone Manuel, who's um, a phenomenal person and a phenomenal swimmer. I would say those are some people to watch. Kayla Decky always. Uh, I'd say underlying in Team USA is we do have a pretty young and relatively inexperienced group um, behind the veterans. And it's looking at the teenagers. Uh, We have five high school athletes on the team. We have two athletes that, you know, that are um, took a gap year between their senior year of high school and then going to college. So we have seven athletes who have yet to do one lap of college, college competition. So, looking at those athletes and seeing how they do and, and hopefully that energy and vibe that that I talked about supports them um, having never, many of them having never swam at this level. Uh, We do have um, one more athlete that I'll mention is Reagan Smith, who uh, broke two world records in 2019 and is uh, now she's 18 years old or, and uh, about to start a freshman year at Stanford. So um, she's a person to look at too. So we do have some young talent that would be, that's really exciting to, to follow. That's a, that's a fun category. So thank you for that. I, I, my memory is when I may have this wrong, but my memory of Ledecky kind of bursting on the scene in one of the long distance races against 
one of the grand dams of swimming. Is this my memory? That and, and the announcers were just kind of beside themselves that this teenage know nothing teenager was like crushing the champion. And that was the moment that she kind of introduced herself. And so you're pointing us to we well, we might go get one of those moments because we got seven kids on the team, um, and a Reagan Smith in particular. So that's helpful for us. So thank you. Um Audie, you trying to get in here before we let no, Russell I just I, I just point out uh, I never forget a 15-year-old. Michael Phelps standing on the blocks, assuming I think it was a 200 butterfly as a tiny little boy. He was hardly full grown. And uh, and everyone was sort of marveling at this kid, basically just out of middle school. And and now, you know, you look back and he comes out four years later and he's a superstar. And four years after that, wins eight gold medals. Yeah, I mean, Michael was 16 at his first Olympics and took fifth place in the 200 fly kind of not really knowing the world, not knowing what the legend of Michael Phelps had in store for us. And same with Katie, Katie was 15 and just left everybody with their jaws dropped, how much she blew away the field in 2012. And it's just really exciting to see what, how those stories unfold. All right. Well, listen, we thank you again for the time, especially with all that you've got going on, especially this time of day, but Russell delight talking to you and we'll be watching. So good luck and have fun. Awesome. Thanks for the support. Great chatting with you guys. You bet. Russell Mark, manager of high performance for USA Swimming. He's in Tokyo with the team talking to us about training, technique, mental, and some storylines for the upcoming Olympics. That has been two hours, guys. Another two hours of sports analytics here on Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM for the whole crew. Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow in absentia. Maddie Dash, the boss man. Dion Simpkins. Quasi boss man makes things happen. Many thanks to those guys. Many thanks to you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time between now and then. Enjoy your sports.